Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. In the better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And we have a really special conversation uh, upcoming for you today. We have a conversation that I had with Ruby Mercado and David Timmerman. And Ruby is the brother of Giovanni Mercado, who was shot and killed by police about a year ago. And David Timmerman is a retired Salt Lake police officer uh, who has 24 years experience on the job. And some of which are are really interesting and gives him some insight into um, this conversation because he worked as as a homicide detective, which also includes officer officer involved shooting incidents where he would um, actually have to investigate those as well so we have um, a you know an experienced police officer who can speak to um, just some of the specifics about police reform in general but uh, who else we have is someone's life who has been affected uh, firsthand by a police shooting with her brother uh, being shot and killed. There's not many of these conversations that I feel um, intimidated by or overwhelmed by. This was definitely one of them. Uh, To speak so directly with someone who's experienced tragedy like Ruby has and to hear her words and to hear her really come through and fight for justice for him and to fight for justice for others. And I was really, really touched at the end of this conversation when Ruby spoke uh, kindly of police officers and how important their lives are as well. So I'm not going to go through my regular segment today where I say this is something I'm thinking about or something I'm learning about because I feel like this conversation stands on its own. It's really important. I hope you tune in for all of it uh, and just really feel Ruby's experience. It's the feeling of these experiences. Ruby lives right down just a few blocks from me. And this is a person right in our neighborhood that has had direct experience with this. And we can learn from her experience. So up next, my conversation with Ruby and David. Hey, well, welcome to the show. Uh, Ruby, uh, welcome to the show. Say hi for us. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, and we have Dave here with us as well. Hello. <laughs> He's there. <laughs> well, I am really excited about uh, this conversation today. Um, I It is going to be one of the tougher conversations, I feel like, that we've had on this show before. And uh, it's it's been weighing on me heavy as I've uh, talked with Ruby and met her uh, about, about having this conversation. And one of the things I feel like this show is about is having uh, just these conversations with people who are local uh, because behind every one of these situations, behind every um, situation is a person and is a family. And for me, change in my life towards the positive only comes and happens when I can have, when I've had those personal 
kinds of conversations that move me. And so to know that there's a person here um, and can share with us, I think is gonna be really important. So Ruby, um, tell us a little bit about Giovanni. Uh, tell us about what it was like growing up with him and who he was. Well, I mean, growing up with him, it's any sibling relationship. It's you got your ups and you have your downs, but I mean, he was definitely a really big part of my life. He was my older brother. He was always there to protect me and help me out in any way that he could, giving me all the advice that he thought that I needed. Um, he was a very creative person. He was so talented, was really interested in making music and someday being recognized for his music talent. And he absolutely loved drawing. He was had a way with a pencil and paper. Um, how many started. years, how many years, how many years separate the two of you? Two and a half. Two and a half. So you guys are pretty close. Yeah, we were pretty there. Yeah. yeah, so always together. I mean, we talked on a daily basis. If we weren't, if we didn't see each other, we called each other every day. Really yeah. close. Do you have any, do you have any Giovanni stories between the two of you that you'd like to share? Give us, give us one, one story or something that you, uh, that you have of him that's, that's memorable. You know, I don't know why, but this specific memory has never left my mind. Um, so he was hanging out in my mom's room and he started pretending to sleep and my mom really wanted to take a nap. So I was like, I got it, mom. I'm going to take him out of the room. So he's still pretending to sleep. I'm dragging him out of the room. <laughs> and we had really high stairs. So I'm going down the stairs with him and I, my feet kind of get caught under him and we're just sledding down the stairs. And it was the greatest thing ever. Don't know why, but that's, one of my favorite memories of him because we were really, you know, kids enjoying life and not even caring what was out there in the world. That's, that's a beautiful memory. It's a beautiful memory. Um, and so, I mean, this is going to get, get really hard for, for me to even, to even ask, but let's take me to the night Giovanni was shot and tell me, tell me what that was like. Tell me, walk me through that, that night. Okay, so it kind of, it, it makes it really difficult like to even think about it because his birthday was the day before. Um, I gave him a birthday present, you know. How was old was he again? He turned 26. Just turned 26. Mm-hmm. Um, we had cupcakes, we had a good time, and then the next day, so I was pregnant at the time, Um and it, it was not a good pregnancy. It was not fun. <laughs> so I never left the house. And the one time that I left the house, uh, I want to say maybe like 30, 40 minutes before I left, we had a conversation and he was just telling me that he was going to go hang out in the back. He really liked hanging out back there, listening to music, writing poetry. So that was our last conversation. It wasn't anything too meaningful, but I left to a friend's house and maybe like 10 minutes of sitting on my friend's couch. My sister calls me and she's like, Hey, Giovanni's been shot. And like the crazy part about that is that I didn't even, I thought it was just like 
somebody who didn't he didn't get along with or anything besides ever thinking that it could have been Ogden police officers. So it was, it was definitely hard getting that call and then coming to the scene. Um, one of the first things, as soon as I got to the scene, because they, they wouldn't let me, they had blocked off the road. So I had gotten out of the car and I just started running. And as soon as I got to the street where they blocked it off, um, like I'm telling them, hey, I live here. Like, that's my brother. What's going on? And he's like, oh, we can't let you in. We can't let you come onto the property. I was like, well, where's the ambulance? And the officer's response was, well, he's not going to need one. And I just dropped and, you know, let my emotions out. And soon after my sister, she came out and she got me. And like the rest of the night was a lot of tears and exhaustion, just seeing that firsthand on the property nobody really caring about feelings. Wow. That's, that's just really, really hard. Um, tell me, uh, only because I think this is pertinent to the conversation. Um, uh, you know, Giovanni, uh, there'd been reports that he had struggled, uh, with, with mental illness. Um, Tell me, it was were, are those are those true? Has he what what was what was he dealing with at, at the time or in his life? So I want to say like mid twenty sixteen, he was finally diagnosed with schizophrenia. They kind of explained to him, "Hey, well, all of these things that you're experiencing, it's due to this. Let's get you on some medication." And he did go through different medications to try and find one that actually worked for him because a lot of the times they would really change his personality or they would make him sleep all day and he just didn't want to waste his life on a couch sleeping around his bed Um, so that was a really big struggle for him to kind of say oh well there's something actually mentally wrong with me and now I'm kind of stuck taking medication to kind of feel like myself again. So that was a struggle for him. Yeah. I only bring that up because I think in the future, you know, as we go, as we move on to this conversation and talk about how things could have turned out differently. um, I I just yesterday finished watching a documentary called crisis cops and, and about Mm -hmm. how they have specific divisions responsible to, for responding to mental health. And so I wanted to, I wanted to get that, uh, in there. Um, so tell me about the next week and months, what you and your family, uh, were going through, um, in, in the coming weeks and months. Um, so days after, well, we kind of just waited some time until we got the, the body back so we could do a viewing and we, my mom really wanted to cremate him. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, But while we waited for that and just kind of having family over, um, we ran across Malik Dio hunting us down. He's like, hey, I really want to make a protest for Giovanni. Like, does anybody know who his family is? And uh, we ended up getting communication. So I want to say like five days after, we just dove right into 
protesting and council meetings and it's it hasn't really died down at all um i feel like we've in some way it's kind of helped us push aside dealing with it because i know we talk about it every day and we are fighting for justice but we're not necessarily acknowledging that hey we have like grief to deal with um we're just solely focused on trying to get justice and police reform and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was going to be my question is <clears throat> what does that feel like um, as you're, you know, both trying to grieve and trying to, um, you know, try to get justice for his death? What, what, what has that been like for your family? Um, it's kind of unfortunate that we don't, We've kind of just tried to let each individual in the house, you know, have their own space. It it was pretty traumatizing. You know, it's one thing to hear about these kind of things and like know that this is the way that a family member passed. But it's definitely another thing when you saw it and you were there to witness, you know, your loved one just kind of laying there for hours. Um, So we've kind of, it's not healthy, but we've kind of just let each individual kind of talk about it if they want to talk about it. And if they don't, we don't put pressure on anyone, but being involved with the protest and um, like any events like that, we've, I mean, personally, myself, I can't really speak to anybody else, but I kind of just put my focus on that so I don't have to necessarily feel what I should be letting myself feel. Yeah, super hard. Um, You talked about council meetings. Um, I did recently go back and listen to the council meeting uh, where Chief Watt spoke um, and, uh, Dave, Dave spoke at that meeting too. He was there. Uh, I know your dad spoke at that meeting and I was really just struck by, um, chief Watt. And this is the second time I've heard him speak where he just really has the inability to lead with empathy right off the bat. He started with, well, there's been a lot of rhetoric and hyperbole spread about this situation and, you know, didn't lead with, you know, condolences, didn't lead with, um, you know, any of the other parts that he should have. Um, how did, how was it being there in that, in that meeting? Uh, it was infuriating. Um, I had gone to that council meeting and I had planned and I had, you know, written out my thoughts and on what I was going to say to the council members. Um, but after sitting there and listening to the chief speak, um, it was probably better for me to just sit and stay quiet. That was very frustrating to see no emotion or heart from this man. Um, like, I understand this is your job. You want to keep your you know, officers safe, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, I don't fault you for that, but there was no remorse whatsoever, no 
no heart to even the slight apology that he did offer. It was, I'm sorry, but it was like, I, I did not feel any actual empathy or sympathy or any, any feelings in that apology at all. Yeah, there was one other moment that I thought was just, well, there was a couple more moments in his speech that I thought were just in such poor taste. Um, there was one, and this is a quote. He says, it's unfortunate that the family's emotions have been harnessed by a few with a pre-existing political agenda. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, in that moment is invoking your family and saying that you are pawns of someone else. And I mm-hmm. wondered how that made you feel. Um, it was frustrating. Um on a few council meetings that we had attended, they were very vocal on keeping emotions out of any topics or anything like that. But I think the world runs on emotion. You can't really, you don't make any decisions without emotion. That's how we get and somewhere. We're talking about the death of a human being. I mean, what are yeah. you talking about? No emotion. Like, what is that? What is that? I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And and like, we try to keep our emotions as much as we could out of it. Um, But when you're talking about saving other people's lives or like bringing in um, more training or other options to avoid using lethal force, I don't know how they took that as emotional. Um, I think it's you know, who wouldn't want to improve or who wouldn't want to better, who wouldn't want to avoid more of these situations. And I don't know why they automatically tied that to emotions. Yeah, this is a point where I'd really like to bring Dave in and and his expertise. And uh, before we do that, I'm, I'm, this is, this is going to be hard to, I'm, I'm, I just want to walk through the scenario um, with which, Giovanni's death occurred um, so the listener can kind of understand and then so that Dave can reflect back on that. Would that be okay, Ruby? Oh, absolutely. And if I get any details wrong here, feel free to correct me. Um, I only know what I, what I saw on the YouTube video watching to, mm-hmm. to try to prepare for this. And uh, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, so, you know, the, there's, it's body cam footage from a police officer mm-hmm. and he comes on the scene and Giovanni's back kind of by the porch um, and he comes out in the carport and he's holding, he's holding a knife by his side and mm-hmm. he holds it by his side the entire time. And he walks kind of methodically and slowly and continues towards the officers. The officers do tell him, put the knife down, put the knife down, put the knife down. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, raise it. He doesn't run. He doesn't change speeds. He, there's no aggression at mm-hmm. all. He just continues to walk towards them and he gets about to the front gate uh, and the police open fire. And I believe there was 20 rounds, um, 16 of which hit him. Um, so Dave, could you maybe speak to as a former and retired a uh, police officer with many years experience, how that situation could have ended differently, started differently, ended differently, been approached differently. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, again, Ruby, I, I'm I'm sorry you guys have to continue to uh, deal with this, and uh, it uh, really never goes away, and uh, it's just going to be a, a very long process. You know that now. You've been it's been over a year now, and uh, you and your family have my deepest uh, condolences for the whole um, the whole situation. Uh, but so by by way of just a brief explanation, so when I worked uh, for Salt Lake City for 24 years, um, I was lucky and got to work a lot of assignments. One of those was homicide. And in homicide, the investigators at that, that time, and I believe even now, uh, also uh, did officer-involved shootings. Um, uh, when an officer discharges his weapon, of course, now, uh, for any reason, it has to be reported. But uh, then, too, if there was an unlawful discharge or even if it was considered lawful, um, if, if another person was injured or property was damaged as a result of that, um, um, a police report had to be done and we would investigate that. And that would be uh, especially in cases where uh, uh, another human being was killed or seriously injured, uh, we would take our time just like at a homicide scene and, and we would spend uh, a lot of time collecting evidence and so forth and creating diagrams and all that to try to uh, depict what occurred. Uh, of course, the biggest part of that is uh, also questioning witnesses, including the uh, officers and other witnesses who were present. Um, in this particular case, as to your question, uh, Kevin, it took me a long time to get back to that. No, that was perfect. Um, yeah, there were so many things uh, that could have been done differently, and uh, and I am not uh, um, I am not a Monday morning quarterback. I'm not trying to do that. But from what I know and, and what little I've read about involving this case, it sounded to me like we had um, four officers that responded, uh, one of which was still in training and one of which had only had uh, recently been hired, I think less than a year. And uh, the other two, I think, were relatively uh, green also. I could be wrong on that, but that's what I recall. Um, and so tactically, um, you know, they teach you to park far away, especially on a call like this uh, involving an armed subject. You don't pull up with your headlights on. Uh, you approach on foot. Um, tactically, I would say there was a whole lot that could have been done much better. Um, somebody and that's, a, that, that's important. Uh, to correct me if I'm wrong here. The, the part where they they because were the officers backing up and then ran up against their cars and couldn't back up further? Is that why that's important? Is that part of the car? Well, the yeah, it's uh, it's complex, like, like a lot of things. But primarily, first of all, whoever the assigned unit is typically is the person who takes the lead. Okay, so, so you have the assigned unit. You have an officer who has assigned the call. And then you have uh, other officers that respond as backup and others as needed. Um, in this case, I'm not sure if there were two officers in a car, but I think I think all four had their own individual vehicles. I could be wrong. It could have been um, um, one car with two officers. That might have been the trainee was in one. But Ruby, I'm not it sounds sure. Like, Ruby, it sounds like you have some of the details on that. Do you? I do. Yes. Okay. So Officer A, um, he arrived by himself and right around the same time. Um, another patrol car arrived and that one had um, the officer and the, the, the trainee. And 
seconds after that, a fourth officer arrived, and that was the officer who pulled up right to the scene um, instead of making his way to the scene. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. That's kind of what I thought. So anyway, yes. Uh, so that could have been handled the correct way based on my training, which I admit now it's been a while. But, but that kind of training hasn't really changed a lot. And so the initial unit should have taken control of the scene, and he should have directed the other officers that responded subsequently uh, to take other positions supporting where he was. Uh, what I saw, like you, in the video uh, was, was the officers responding in a tight cluster uh, close to the uh, proximity, so close that I, I was actually surprised. And, and instead of holding back or finding better positions of cover. And, and so um, when, um, when Giovanni came out um, and, and was walking to them and they were giving him orders to drop the knife, um, they were already so close uh, that they put themselves in a, 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 an untenable situation, okay, in my opinion. And so that's only part of it, but, but there wasn't a lot of coordination and that is not completely their fault. Um, officers have to respond, you know, immediately. A lot of times there's not time for that sort of planning. And if you have a less than seasoned officer as the one who responds initially and receives the initial call, uh, then, then things aren't gonna go uh, very smooth unless that officer takes control of the situation. So, so that I would say that yes, the response was uh, from an officer safety standpoint alone was pretty scary. Um, you're not supposed to be that close. Uh, you're you're in the, you're in the process of trying to evaluate what actually is going on, whether in fact there is a problem. Um, you don't immediately assume that all the facts provided to you by the dispatch uh, are correct, because they're not. You know, it's a it's a uh, a fluid process changing every second, and so so yes, that I would say tactically that was wrong. And then the other thing was, um, as you noticed, I believe there were no uh, there was no warning, there was no drop the knife or we'll shoot. Am I am I wrong about that, Ruby? I don't believe there was a warning that they were going to shoot. No, not at all. It came with that warning. Right. And of course, the rest, we know the rest and we've seen the video. Uh, so, so everybody's going to draw their own conclusions. But to me, I think it could have been handled much uh, better if officers would not have thrown themselves into the breach immediately, taking a better position of cover across the street behind other vehicles, um, um, uh, even adjusting thing, ha having another officer to try to go around the, the rear of the home, which typically you would do is there's also a containment issue. Uh, and there's other possibilities, you know, if, if you're really worried about this person, then you should think, you know, be thinking tactically during your do that, and especially protecting yourself and other people. Uh, when it occurred, it was, it was uh, rapid and those things happen, it happens fast. But we can talk more about all the reasons why, but, but yes, uh, to your question, Kevin, I think it could have been uh, handled much better than it was, of course. 
That's really interesting uh, hearing from your perspective, because I think most people think about only the, the moment when, when the trigger is pulled and, um, and they, they, they try to, they make all the justifications around that moment. Um, and, you know, watching that video, it seemed to me that that moment, the officers did exactly as they were trained to do. And, you know, as, you know, it doesn't, I think anybody that watches that video objectively thinks there has got to be a better way. There, there has got to be another way. Um, is there at that moment, they've put themselves in a bad situation. Are there less lethal options or are there other things they could have done or tried or in that moment? Um, well, again, I, I, I kind of don't want to go there, but I think that uh, we know that there's other options that they could have taken. They could have taken hands-on. They could have uh, deployed a taser. Um, uh, depending on what kind of additional, um, a non-lethal um, 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 uh, devices they had, uh, they could have tried to deploy, deploy those. They could have uh, decided that, uh, you know, that they're going to work together to try to disarm him uh, without uh, firing a weapon. But it did, it happened too fast. And, uh, and uh, I think in this case, you had a lot of, uh, at least it seems from my point of view and what I know, uh, you had some unseasoned people who were uh, reacting and instead of um, uh, trying to uh, slow the process down and, and think of other alternatives uh, rather than going to gun immediately. Of course, uh, you see an armed subject um, and you have to act and typically an officer will um, uh, keep his gun at a low ready or take it out of the holster or not, depending on how he feels at the, at the, at the moment. But uh, a lot of times you don't, you don't know. And, and a lot of this is training. It is training. Uh, it's mindset. And, uh, and I think uh, as we've covered uh, the circumstances uh, ended badly. And of course, it's easy for us to say, but I do believe that, that it could have been handled much, uh, much better and a much different outcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Ruby, you know, you guys, as you have uh, fought for uh, justice for Giovanni and have, you know, it's really, there, there's been this moment that your brother's death and George Floyd's death met together and some momentum. What was, what was that like and what have you guys been fighting for during this time? It's been, wow, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, it's, it's definitely picked up. Um, and I mean, you come into any situation like this knowing that there's a strong possibility of walking away with, oh, it's justified and that's that, there's no more to it. Um, but as we were filing the lawsuit and like the COVID-19 came into play and that delayed a lot of um, the lawsuit moving forward and the complaint being filed. So really we were, we were ready and it just felt like perfect timing with the momentum that George Floyd brought to the table. It brought up 
the conversation a lot more than it was before. Um, so it's it was definitely an advantage to have that there. It's very unfortunate that George and his family are going through this as well. Um, but for our aspect and how long we were fighting for this and the lawsuit being slowed down due to COVID-19, um, it was definitely an advantage by the time that we were ready we were at the peak of George Floyd. So that kind of, there was definitely an advantage, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, these, these sort of conversations um, wouldn't necessarily be happening um, without this historic moment happening, but it also wouldn't be happening without you. It wouldn't be happening locally without you and your family and Malik, who I hope to have on on a future podcast. Um, speaking about it. And, um, you know, one of the things I know Malik talks a lot about, and he'll, he'll, he'll talk, uh, in, in his protests about how he wants to give those, those individual officers a raise, because as David talked about, those officers were very inexperienced. And this is a problem that Ogden has. Um, Mm -hmm. we do not pay our police officers well enough. And so they leave. Uh, they, yeah. we have great officers, uh, and they come and they, we train them. We, and I mean, we, it takes a lot of money to invest and, and to train a new officer and then they get some experience and the other, you know, police departments love that they have experience in Ogden and, and they swoop them up and pay them more and, and, mm-hmm. and they leave, uh, you know, so that, that, and, and so I think, you know, people, are, are think Malik and, and the Mercados and everybody, they're all just anti-police. We were like, but for, I've heard Malik say, Hey, we were, we want to, we want you guys to have raises. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't we want to pay them more? Um, their job is difficult. Their job is dangerous. It's not something easy to go out and do. Um, part of the reason why Salt Lake is taking all of our officers is because they have a union and they base their um, pay on national on a national scale. They compare um, to other national police departments, and that's how they calculate the pay that Salt Lake City police officers get. And that's why they're getting, I don't know if double or even triple what Ogden is getting paid. And I feel like that is completely wrong. It's immoral to want to pay our officers. $18. Like they can go to um, auto leaf and get $18 an hour. Like, come on now. I feel like they should definitely be getting paid more for the work that they do. Absolutely. Dave, can you speak to that? The, uh, the union aspect and, and um, Ogden's situation that we put the, our police department has put themselves in. Um, yeah, I, of course, can offer an opinion. Uh, I think Salt Lake City, of course, is the largest uh, municipality in the state. And uh, I think they have over 500 officers. And, uh, of course, they uh, they are set up to pay more. They have a little uh, larger tax base, of course, than Ogden City. Uh, but Ogden City has 90,000 uh, citizens, more or less. Um, and, and I think the problem for a lot of smaller departments is, 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 first of all, it's not just the pay, but it's everything else. Um, Ogden City, a lot of the officers um, uh, live in outside uh, cities and suburbs around the area. 
uh, for whatever reasons. And what really should happen in most communities is you want the officers to actually live in a city uh, where they work, to actually have, you know, to uh, have skin in the game, so to speak, because this is their community. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as far as the, uh, uh, the pay, yeah, of course, Ogden City needs to, uh, needs to pay the officers that are out there doing the work. Um, one other thing, just really quick about about this uh, the shooting. I know that um, a, a little time after uh, Giovanni was uh, was killed, uh, I think it was November November fourteenth. Uh, Jared Dominguez uh, was uh, taken into custody without any firearms being dislodged uh, by the uh, OPD Metro Gang Task Force, and they used a taser. They used mm-hmm. a taser. And, and I remember um, uh, Ruby's dad, uh, Juan, saying um, that uh, Chief, Swat, Chief Watts, quote, that his officers, quote, had no other choice was a lie. And, uh, and that I, I agree with that to sentiment. Um, they do have other choices. And, and uh, generalization like that is not helpful uh, at a time like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dave, tell me, you know, if, if you were, uh, and, and, and you are, you wouldn't be here if you didn't want some police reform, you wouldn't have you having this conversation with us. If you were, uh, tomorrow, I, I know you can only offer your opinion, but if, if tomorrow you were in charge of Ogden police department, what would be the first two or three changes you would make? Wow, that's a that's pretty tough. Um, I first of all, uh, one of the primary changes that I would make. There's two that I would do right away. First of all, um, I would open up um, the books. Um, if I were the chief, I would uh, make all of our information accessible. Um, we would not be some um, secretive closed door unit. Uh, we would. We're there. What you see is what you get. Um, we're not going to cover things up. If our officers are involved in a shooting, a fatal or not, or some other um, activity which may or may not reflect well on, on the department, um, the, the uh, citizens in our city have a right to know who those people are. Their names need to be released. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, before an investigation is complete, of course they need time. But it's ridiculous the uh, the way, and it's not just Ogden City proper, but a lot of the agencies in Weber County are so uh, overly protective of everything and, and the absolute opposite of transparent. But that would be the first thing I'd do, transparency. What You're going to know what we're doing. And we're here to let you know what we're doing. We're not going to hide that. Uh, um, the other thing... Uh, that I think I would do is to work on the training aspect. Obviously, this has come up. Uh, I went to, uh, I joined Malik on one of the rallies. It was the eight, uh, the eight can't wait. And, and whatever you think of the eight can't wait, eight is not enough. It actually is much more complex than that. And, and our laws in Utah specifically need to be changed. But that's a good start. And so, so we need to work on not defunding the police, okay? Uh, that, that was a terrible phrase. Whoever uh, used that phraseology um, 
really screwed up in my opinion. We're not trying to defund the police. We're trying to reform the police. Mm-hmm. And when I say reform them, I mean reconfigure what a police officer is. What is he? What are his duties? Um, how do we fix what can be fixed? Mm-hmm. And, and what, you know, what are the limits to the, the uh, authority and the power of a police officer? Ruby, how did you, you were nodding along um, with that when he talked about that. Tell me how you, what your thoughts were. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've heard so many things on what defunding the police means. Um, Because when you initially hear it, it sounds awful. Why would you want to take away when we clearly need to give more? Um, That way they have enough training and they have enough funds for all of the training that we're requesting, including the different methods of de-escalating instead of using lethal force. Um, But I've heard some people say that defunding the police actually means just uh, how did they describe it? Um, using funds appropriately, like dispersing the funds in a more appropriate way, as opposed to focusing on, on things that they don't necessarily need. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I like to stay away from defunding the police. Cause I think it's the complete opposite. We need to have more funds so that they are able to get the tr- correct training. Um, I mean, Chief Watt himself, he had a whole um, report on, and he went on each individual aid camp wait and kind of talked a little bit about what he is doing for the department and what isn't being done and such. Um, But I'm not necessarily hearing, hey, these are our policies. Like, okay, you're saying that you're including some de-escalation training okay well what what policies do you actually have that say you have de-escalation in there just because you talk about it in your training doesn't mean you're actually implementing it so I definitely think funds are actually needed so that we can move forward with police reform yeah I read a yeah, I read an article um, recently by by Vox, um, and it said that the title was, uh, we train our police officers to be warriors and send them out to be social workers. Uh, mm-hmm. Dave, how much of your time was spent responding to homelessness, addiction, mental health? Right. I, so to your point, uh, that's exactly right. And I think that I think that really is what they're trying to say when they talk about defunding. I think what it is, it's reconfiguring what are the duties of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And, and the, one of the biggest problems, not just here in, in Weber County or in Ogden City, but across the country, are, are the failure of our systems to actually help those people who are, are mentally ill uh, homeless, drug addicted, otherwise having uh, personal issues. We don't deal with those. Uh, it, it, and, and I remember when I was working, the, if we had someone who was off the rails and uh, someone who's standing in the middle of St- State Street and tear all their clothes off and run up to cars and trying to get hit, 
those kinds of incidents, we had only one choice. And that was take them into custody, take them to the University of Utah Hospital psych ward, and we would spend hours um, getting them to agree to take this subject for their own protection um, into uh, a 24-hour evaluation. And that was the most we could do. We could arrest them, but that wouldn't be appropriate because taking them into custody just makes it worse. And, and what are you going to charge them with? Uh, schizophrenia in a public area? I don't think that's a, a crime. So, so anyway, that is a big problem. And so that's one of the many things that needs to be reexamined, and, and we need to take control of that. And going back to the eight can wait, if you've watched anything that Sim Gill has done, and I know Sim from when he was a he was our city attorney for a while when I was at the police department. Then he became the, the county district attorney. Sim is a good man. Um, is everything he done perfect? No. But he, he actually wrote a, a document which you can get online. It's easy to find. And he outlines 22 real changes that can be made, which will help address almost every issue more than the eight can wait. But all eight of those, in addition to Utah laws that need to be reformed and reversed, um, which will take away the, the total indemnification of officers. I, like everybody else, I was sued a couple of times when I was an officer, and it's the worst feeling you get. You're out trying to do your job, um, somebody gets hurt in the process, and they sue. And, and that is part of the job. However, you, if you really are doing something wrong and you injure someone without any reason or cause, I think, I think you should probably be culpable for that in one way or another. If you go so far as to uh, uh, cause a serious injury or the death of someone that wasn't necessary, then maybe you should be, um, you know, reviewed, disciplined, and culpable even civilly for that. But as it, as it is now in Utah and many other states, uh, you cannot realistically be sued, uh, and and that isn't uh, that should not be uh, shouldn't be the way it is because uh, some some officers are bad apples and they do they should not be employed uh, as officers. Yeah. Um I am going to give a short plug here for the, the show that I watched yesterday, the documentary called Crisis Cops. Um, the, in the beginning, one of the officers, there's, it's about these two officers, Ernie and Joe, and one of the officers talked about how he went to this training. And at this training was a mother of uh, a, a son who was schizophrenic. And she said to, this, to these officers, you will get called to my house someday. And right you need to know how to respond to my son and so that you don't end up harming him. And he said that just made this huge impact on him as a young police officer. And from that, he took it upon himself to start a mental health unit. And the things that these guys do, the, the, the footage of them um, talking with people and uh, they understand at a level that no you know, officers that are not trained this way I just have no idea. And there is no reason why we shouldn't have a mental health unit here in Ogden to respond to those situations. This, this right. is something that is being done in other places. We don't have to recreate the will. This is something that should be done and can be done. Um, and so, yeah, listeners out there, watch that. Um, 
we'll, we'll get the link to uh, what Dave said about Sim Gill's 22 uh, points there. Ruby, do you have uh, maybe something you're hopeful about uh, as you've gone through, through this tragedy in your life, um, something that you've been feeling lately that you're hopeful about that you can leave us with? Um, I mean, mainly I'm, I'm really hoping that I can get some justice for my brother um, and that hopefully this brings on reform. I mean, our lawsuit, the complaint that we filed, has some new policies and some more training that we would like to be implemented so that this doesn't continue to happen. I know that we're not, uh, Ogden's not on a national scale, but I don't think we need to make it that far before we are considering changes. Um, I feel like, you know, we're, we're pretty ahead of the game. We can implement some changes and some policies before it gets to a national scale. We don't need to be there to compare it to. Um, I definitely want to save more lives in the name of my brother. Um, and that also includes our officers. So, I mean, they are human beings. They have families that they need to go home to. Um, I want them to go home to their families as much as I want the suspect or civilian to go home to their families. Well, you know, Ruby, that's just really um, compassionate and empathetic. Um, you know, I could see you having just so much anger in this situation and for you to think about them uh, is, is moving. Um, so I, again, my deepest condolences to you and your family. We really appreciate you um, just sharing this message. I know that because of your guys' efforts, there will be reforms um, that will happen. And that's what I'm hopeful for. Um, Me too. So I'm really I, hoping. <laughs> Go ahead and say again. Oh, I'm just, I'm really hoping. Yes, I agree. There will, there will be things and it'll be directly because of, of you and that in and of itself, um, if nothing else happens, will be some vindication and some justice for Giovanni. Really appreciate you guys. This conversation was uh, really great and touching and appreciate you guys. Well, thank you for having us, sir. Thank you for having me and I'll let Dave speak for himself. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Kevin. I just want to just add one other thing, and, and that is that um, there's Chief Watt, my impression of him was that when he spoke uh, to the city council um, after weeks of waiting and, and uh, reviewed the process which led to uh, Giovanni's death, um, he, he was describing uh, Ogden City as and his officers as us against them. Mm -hmm. um, he was trying to to justify sort of a division, and I think what needs to be emphasized is it's us and us. It's mm -hmm. not us and them. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent with that. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Thanks for leaving us with that note. Um, I agree with you. Um, we can come together as a community and, and, um, and it, it's, it's us and us. So mm -hmm. thank you guys so much. Okay. Thank you. 
And that's it for the show. I want to thank you for tuning in today and listening to that important conversation. I also want to thank August the Great for our awesome theme music and Decker Yazi for our wonderful artwork. We appreciate those guys. And go ahead and check out their stuff on Instagram or YouTube so that you can hear and experience their art. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Volume 1